The text for this morning's worship service is taken from Isaiah 40, verse 9. We'll read that once again. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. After the sermon, we will sing from Psalm 48, the stanzas 3 and 4. Bluff congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters. The text of this morning speaks about the bringing of good tidings. That is what this season is all about as well, or at least it should be. It's about the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, is that also good news for you? Does the news about the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ fill you with joy? There are things that can get us down. Our own sins. We try to live disciplined lives, but more often than not, we are not successful. We don't stick to our diets in the way that we should. We have a hard time breaking certain destructive habits We don't treat others in the way that we would want them to treat us, and so the list can go on and on. We also see the sin in the world. We see the deceitfulness of mankind, his greediness, his blindness to the truth, his cruelty. Especially as you get older, it fills you with despair and gloom. It is wonderful that in the midst of the doom and gloom, Isaiah comes with a prophecy of the birth of a Savior. That's wonderful news. It's the best news that anyone could receive. And so you can understand why Paul in his letter to the Romans says in chapter 10, verse 15, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. It's a direct quote from Isaiah 52, verse 7. In Romans, however, it refers to God's victory through his Son, Jesus Christ. But in Isaiah 52 and here in Isaiah 40, it speaks in the first place about the good news to the exiles in their own particular circumstances. They, too, were in dire need of good news at that time. Things looked pretty bleak. But as is the case with many prophecies in the Old Testament, the significance thereto relates ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ. And also that good news had to be announced to the exiles. According to the text, Zion, which is synonymous with Jerusalem, is the bringer of good tidings. At least that is how the RSV and the King James Version translate this text. And it is also best that we translate it that way. The text should read, O Zion, bringer of good tidings, go up on a high mountain. O Jerusalem, bringer of good tidings, lift up your voice with a shout. Although the way the NIV translates is grammatically possible, we should see Jerusalem and Zion as being the bringers of good tidings. And if you look at the bottom of your NIV, then you will also note that the NIV in a footnote 
gives that translation as a possibility. But now the question is, how can a city speak? What does it speak? What exactly is the good news for the Old Testament believer? What is the, old, what is the significance for us? I will preach to you this morning about the good news from Jerusalem. First, then, the significance of that message, and then, secondly, the proclamation of that message. The good news from Jerusalem, the significance and the proclamation. This text is taken from the well-known and beautiful chapter of Isaiah 40, which begins with the wonderful words of consolation, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. If we want to understand the message of our text, then it is important, as it always is, that we understand the context in which it is given. Why did they need comfort? Why exactly did they need to hear good tidings? Well, in the first 39 chapters, Isaiah prophesied during that time that the Assyrian and Babylonian threat was ominous and great. Isaiah warned Judah and Jerusalem that he will use Assyria as the rod of his anger. He warned them that because of their sins and apostasy that the Lord God would send them away from their land. He would send them to a foreign land. He would send them into exile. Of course, it's not going to happen right away. But if they did not repent, then that is what's going to happen to them. And as you and I now know, it did happen. And it happened some hundred years after Isaiah wrote those words. And so the first 39 chapters of Isaiah are full of accusations and dire predictions. But now here in chapter 4, all that changes. Whereas before Isaiah was speaking during his own time and about his own time, now he prophesies about the future, even farther away. Isaiah speaks to them about the time many years later, when they are actually in exile in Babylon. And even though it would still be quite a long time before this would happen, he now writes as if the exile has already happened. And so here in chapter 40, Isaiah pictures them as being in Babylon, far away from their own country, far away from Zion, far away from the holy city. There they are in a strange country, among people who hated God. But that was not the worst. For the people knew that to the west lie the ruins of Jerusalem. The holy city had been destroyed, raised to the ground. Also the temple lies in ruins. It's no longer possible to go up to Jerusalem. It's no longer to go up to the, it's no longer possible to go to the temple either and there to experience God's presence. It is no longer possible to offer sacrifices for one's sins. And that more than anything else weighed upon them. When they were in Babylon, they would have known why they were there. They knew it because they had broken God's covenant. Isaiah made that abundantly clear in his prophecy. It was because they had worshipped the idols of the heathen nations. They had lived as if the God of their fathers, the God of creation, did not even exist. 
The people, they looked out only for themselves. They went along with the world. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so there was no justice in the land either. Their sin was great and they knew it. They knew that it was because of God's anger that now they are in Babylon. And so now here they are in that heathen country wondering how things could ever be set right again between God and them. How could God once again look favorably upon them? The exiles, they felt abandoned. Did God not promise great things for his nations, for his nation? Did he not say to Abraham that all the nations would be blessed through him? Did he not say that Jerusalem would be established forever? Did the Lord God not make wonderful promises to his people? Now we can understand the message here in Isaiah 40. Isaiah assured them that God has not abandoned them. He assures them that they are still a special people, that he still loves them, that everything is well between him and them. And that is the message that Isaiah gives here. Everything is well between God and his people. That is, those people who still heed his voice. And brothers and sisters, boys and girls, that is the message for us today as well. God does not abandon you. In spite of the fact that you fall into your sins time and again, he is not going to cast you aside just like that. As long as you keep on calling to him in faith, he will remain faithful to you and me. And that's a wonderful message, isn't it? That message is especially for the faithful people of Isaiah's day. For the true believers who live in the midst of disobedience and apostasy, they see from what is happening around them how it is all leading up to the day of God's wrath, when he will use the four nations as a rod of his discipline. But it will be also a great comfort for the believers of a later age who will be exiled in Babylon. They too will know that God still cares. Even there in that heathen Babylonian land, God does not forget his people. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her heart service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for. In other words, Isaiah is saying there will come an end to the exile. The time will come when God is no longer angry with his people. He will forgive them their sins. And then they will be allowed to return to their home country. At least a remnant of them will, those who still want to be obedient to him. And once again they will be allowed to inhabit Jerusalem and Zion. The city will be rebuilt and so will its walls. And the most wonderful thing is that the temple will be rebuilt. Once again, sacrifices will be made to priests and the Levites. They're all going to come back. They're all going to return. Brothers and sisters, what a wonderful picture Isaiah draws for them. And what a wonderful comfort that prophecy will have been for those people who were living in exile 
and had a prophecy of Isaiah in their possession. In spite of everything, there is still a future for God's people. In chapter 40, Isaiah pictures them on the road back from Jerusalem, from Babylon to Jerusalem, as they travel back to the Holy Land. A runner goes ahead of them and cries out, In the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Let there be no roadblocks in the way. Let the mountains be made low and let the valleys be made level. Let there be nothing in the way to impede their progress. Isaiah wants to take all doubt away that this will not happen, for it is going to happen. Nothing will prevent that from happening. And for that reason, he pictures God's word as something very powerful, as something everlasting, saying that although the people are like grass, which is alive today and tomorrow is gone, God's word stands forever. It may look all very bleak. It may seem as if God's word has no power at all. It may seem like that today as well. It may seem as if God does not keep his promises. Nothing, brothers and sisters, is farther from the truth. That's his message to the Old Testament believer. He tells them, Jerusalem will be rebuilt. And the people will once again be able to go to the temple. The Lord will forgive your sins. That is the message that Jerusalem must proclaim once again. Jerusalem is personified here as a herald, as a person who brings good tidings. First, Jerusalem's original name, Zion, is mentioned. When David captured Jerusalem many hundred years before, it was located on the hill by that name, on Mount Zion. As the city expanded, the name Zion came to be applied to the whole city. And so two times Isaiah refers to that city, Zion and Jerusalem, as the bringer of good tidings. And he says it twice for emphasis. Jerusalem may once again become a proclaimer of good tidings. She will stand there, as it were, on that hill and beckon the people to come to find healing there and to experience God's presence there. Jerusalem may proclaim once again the good news that God dwells among her. Jerusalem may proclaim the good tidings to the towns of Judah. Here is your God. Come to the second point. The word that the text uses here for bringing of good tidings is a word which was used especially for messengers during a war. Men who were of swift feet would be sent throughout the whole land as soon as the battle was over. And then the fastest runners would go to let the people know what happened on the battlefield. For all the people throughout the land would be very eager to hear the outcome of the battle. There was a lot at stake. The whole future of the nation would depend on it. People would want to know about their loved ones, whether or not they survived the battle. And during times like that, there would be great tension in the land. Everyone would be eagerly awaiting the message that the victory has been won. And once the victory has been proclaimed, 
then it becomes a totally new situation. The people can once again sigh, breathe a sigh of relief. Once again, they can make plans for the future. They can plant their crops without fear. They can live without having to look over their shoulder whether or not the enemy is coming to kill them or to rob them. The tension is gone. They can enjoy freedom. And now you can understand why Isaiah and Paul speak about the beauty of the feet of the messengers. These words were written before modern transportation and means of communication. Nowadays, a message can quickly be related from one end of the world to the other by telephone or the Internet, through satellites and many other means. We can also go quickly from one place to the next by car, by train, or by airplane. But during the time of the Bible, no such means of communication and transportation were possible. Messages had to be brought on foot, in person. You had to walk or run from one place to the next in order to bring a message. And that is why the text speaks about the feet of the messenger. If you were waiting for news from somewhere and you were eager to receive that news, then you would be listening for the feet of the messenger who would be coming to tell you the news. And so, how beautiful the feet of those who bring good news. Indeed. And now you see also the significance of that word. Jerusalem may now also be a bringer of good news. For Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt. And Jerusalem may proclaim that the victory has been won. Not through a king and his army. No, Jerusalem may proclaim that God has won the victory. God has come and saved his people. He has brought them back to Jerusalem. He has won the victory. But do you think that was good news only for that time? Of course not. Throughout the whole Old Testament period, God's people have always lived in a certain tension. For they were waiting for the coming of the Messiah, the Savior of the world. They were waiting for that time that all of Israel would be redeemed. Listen to what old Simeon said at the time when the baby Jesus was presented in the temple. And when he held the Redeemer of Israel in his arms, he said, Sovereign Lord... As you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Luke 2, verse 29 and following. Old Simeon and many like him had been waiting for that Savior to be born. This was good news to them. But that good news had to be proclaimed to all the people Israel. And that is why God first sent out John the Baptist. He was the first bringer of the good news in the New Testament. For that reason, the words in Isaiah 40 verse 3 was quoted by Luke in reference to that forerunner of Christ. Luke says in chapter 3 verse 4 and following about John the Baptist, As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. 
The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. John the Baptist could proclaim that all the obstacles to the coming of the Savior of the world have now been removed. What God promised long ago will now take place. Throughout the Old Testament period, Satan tried to do everything in his power to prevent the incarnation of the Son of God. He did not want that child to be born in Bethlehem. But now, nothing can thwart God's plan. Not even Satan. God is in control of all events. He removes all obstacles. And that is the message that John the Baptist had to proclaim, and he did. He also had this confirmed when the Lord Jesus told John the Baptist's disciples, Go back to report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. And now you see what the good tidings ultimately were all about. It is not just a message about the deliverance from the Babylonians, from exile. No, it is about the deliverance from the power of sin. Deliverance out of the great power of the devil and hell. Christ is going to suffer and to die and pay the last penny for our sins. Christ is going to make atonement for our sins. Through him, everything will be made well again between God and us. And now there is a totally new situation. There is no longer any tension in the lives of the believers. At least there should not be. Brothers and sisters, we do not have to be afraid. We too can sigh a tremendous sigh of relief. God has redeemed us from the evil one. He forgives us our sins. He tells us that all is well between him and us. We may share in the victory of his son. We may reign together with him over all creation forever and ever. The Lord Jesus, through the Lord Jesus Christ, we, know, we may know that we will receive the renewal of life, the total renewal of life. It says in the text that the messenger must lift up his voice with a shout. He must not be afraid. That's what every believer has to do. Even those contemporaries of Isaiah who lived during the threat of the Assyrian Empire, they must not be afraid to proclaim that message in the midst of an apostate world. And the same thing is true of the exiles in Babylon. They too, in the midst of their terrible circumstances, may proclaim that God's word will always come true. Let me ask you, are you also doing that? Are you proclaiming that wonderful message of salvation to those people with whom you come into contact? Do you tell the world with your words and deeds what the birth of Jesus is all about? Are you a witness in the midst of this sinful world? Oh sure, this world is in the midst, is in the grip of the devil. And so you may say, what good will it do? They don't listen anyway. The world will only ridicule you. Well, during, the, I, during Isaiah's time and later, things were not much different. 
during the exile, the temple was in ruins. And the enemies surrounded Jerusalem from all sides. Yet in the midst of all that, they had, pro- they had to proclaim to all the foreign nations that the God of Israel is not dead. He is alive. He will rescue them. There is no doubt about it. And thus it is also today. The world of today says that God is dead. They say that he doesn't exist and that he never did. Anyone who believes that God created the world in six days and that the world has been in existence only for some ten thousands of years rather than billions of years, such a person is a fool. The world today wants nothing to do with God. Look around you. The majority of the politicians don't, nor do the people themselves. But it is the duty of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to continue to proclaim to everyone whom God places on her path that God does exist. He is alive. They must proclaim to everyone, here is your God. He is alive and he has won the victory over Satan. He has dealt with sin and evil most radically. Believe and you too will be saved. Note well that his message has to be proclaimed, as it says in the text, to the towns of Judah in the first place. In other words, that message must be proclaimed to God's people. And for us that means that that message has to continue to be proclaimed from this pulpit. For God's people must take that message to heart themselves first of all. And they have to live in the victory. You have to live in the victory of Christ. You have to live in the victory of God's salvation for his people. You have heard the good tidings. You hear it every time, every Sunday from this pulpit. And now, beloved, time and again you have to have a new outlook on life. But you also have to pass that on. You also must do that from the way you live, from the way you walk to walk and talk to talk. For the fact that God is alive has tremendous consequences for all of life. For that means that we must respond to that God of salvation. That means that we must not want to partake of the sins of this world, that we do not want to partake of their decadent activities as it is shown on the TV screens and on the computer screens. We do not want to celebrate along with the world as they do in their music and in their idolatry. That doesn't mean that we cannot enjoy music or other things, but be careful. God's people have been set free from sin and evil. That is the message that must be proclaimed. Beloved, Christmas Day is coming soon. It's only two days away. What message are you sending this Christmas season? As a child of God, you must bring the good tidings of salvation to all those with whom you come into contact. You have to do that to your children. What kind of day 
is Christmas for your children. What do they think of? And you must proclaim that to your brothers and sisters in the Lord. And you must proclaim that also to others in the community. What kind of message are you sending to them? Will yours be a message of the joy of your salvation? Will yours be a message of the sure knowledge that God rescues those who believe in him? How will the joy of the birth of Christ be evident in your life? God's message to his children is a powerful one. God's word will stand forever. And through his word, you are either given life or death. For God's word is a two-edged sword. God wants his name to be glorified through you. He wants his presence to be made known through you. Proclaim it, beloved. Proclaim it in every way you know. And those who do not want to listen, they will fall away. But others, they will come. They will come to Jerusalem. They will come to want to belong to God's people. And you and I, we belong to him. And that's a wonderful thing. Remember that as you prepare to celebrate the birth of Christ. Amen.